Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to be reading verses 24 through 35. Hear God's word to us. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it was a Thursday night. like most Thursday nights, I guess. Thursday nights. And I saw what nobody really likes seeing on a Thursday night. It was heavy traffic. And in the dashboard of my vehicle, every light you could think came on. And it begins to shake pretty violently, right? Now, <clears throat> if you've never had car troubles, congratulations. I don't really want to talk to you after the service. But if you had have car, had, had, you have had car troubles, then you know just how frustrating those moments can be. And to make matters worse, I had literally just dropped off our vehicle, or actually had it towed the week before to this shop to fix some unknown issues. And they were confident. We fixed it. It's all good to go. Come pick it up. Was it? (laughs) So needless to say, I was pretty frustrated. I mean, I wasn't expecting them to turn our 13-year-old MDX into like a 2016 Maserati or anything. as nice as that would be, but I was, I was hoping they would help me do more than just get off the lot. And interestingly enough, it was 10 minutes after they had just closed for the evening. So that was fun to think about the night through. What is going on? And I wasn't expecting them to make the car perfect, but just better. <laughs> better than this so that my lights didn't come on again. And, and when these things don't happen or, or these things do happen when you're expecting them not to happen, it's just disappointing isn't it? And I feel like that's one episode that oftentimes we can look the whole world over and feel like the world is just kind of disappointing. I mean, when you think about our most recent history, like revival leaders, like Billy Graham, who led thousands upon thousands to Christ, or 
civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. who led thousands upon thousands to the next step of liberation towards equality or human dignity activists like Mother Teresa who cared for thousands upon thousands of the overlooked and they inspired a world of change. And now you can see churches in urban centers and suburban edges who are faithfully present to the gospel. The gospel and who Jesus is is known by more people at this point in history than any other time in the world. And yet, our education system in this nation is more fragmented than we could have ever imagined. Racism continues to morph and so pervade almost every institution Viruses like Zika that we thought were gone pop back up and continue to attack the most vulnerable. Churches find themselves at times where they split or fizzle. And look, we find ourselves on a weekend and in a world still at war that is as as important as Memorial Day is. The ever-growing list of soldiers who lose their life in active duty is daunting. And all this leads to some of the biggest pushbacks that so many people and maybe some people in this room have when it comes to Christianity. And it's this. If Jesus' kingdom is so good, why is everything still so bad? If Jesus' kingdom is so good, why is everything still so bad? I mean, Jesus 2,000 years ago said he was ushering in a new regime. Shouldn't things be a little bit better by now? And listen, if you're one of those optimistic types that doesn't just see the glass half full, but all the way full, congratulations. I'm not that way, but I also want to say that that the world's not all bad, okay? I understand that too. There's some really good things going on, but still, if Jesus' kingdom is good, I mean, as good as he describes it being, shouldn't our world be a little bit better than this? And if you've ever thought about that, have you ever come to that moment where you've thought about Jesus and his kingdom and it just... It seems uninspiring, it seems kind of weak, and and maybe just a bit disappointing. Disappointment, it's kind of a pretty common feeling for us as human beings. What is disappointment? Disappointment is when our experience doesn't measure up to our expectations. When experience doesn't measure up to our expectations. Disappointment, it's when a friend cancels for dinner the day of, and you've got all the supplies, and now you're figuring what next. Disappointment, it's when you're passed over for that next job or that next promotion. Disappointment, it's like every chief season for like the past decade. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. You know, and for many, disappointment is the word that so many people think of when they think about Jesus and his kingdom. And if you feel that way or if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. You're not alone. Especially for a first century Jewish person. Some of their first encounters with Jesus, even then felt disappointing. I mean, Jesus could preach like no one's business, okay? He came with all authority. He healed people. He cast out demons. He was a voice for the voiceless, all that. But as soon as Jesus started talking about his kingdom and the way it was coming into the world, people started scratching their heads. You see, almost every Jewish person in the first century really thought that God was going to bring in his kingdom. But how? What was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed servant of God? How was he to do it? But as a military leader who was to destroy those who were oppressing Israel. God's kingdom come was seen as a military victory, literally throwing off the the shackles of oppression. 
and making Israel the most powerful nation in the world. So, cue Jesus. <laughs> and instead of striking down Rome, he has sympathy on Roman centurions and heals one of their daughters. Instead of ostracizing Rome's sympathizers like tax collectors, he makes them disciples and even one of them an apostle, the apostle Matthew, who writes this gospel account for us. When people try to make him king, he thwarts their plan and he actually runs. That feels a bit disappointing to almost every Jewish person in the first century. And what they were experiencing with Jesus and his kingdom, it didn't match their expectations. And the same can be true for us today. But the question is, why? Why? Today in our passage, Jesus tells a series of parables, the set of stories to begin to explain why his kingdom seems so disappointing to us, but then makes a turn and simultaneously tells us why his kingdom is still worth your everything, despite your disappointments. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be anchored there if you're using our community Bible. It's found on page number 819. <coughs> Let's look at why. Why Jesus' kingdom seems so disappointing here first. Well, in verse 24, Jesus begins to address our expectations. Remember, disappointment is when our experience doesn't match our expectations. It doesn't measure up. And he begins to tell a story by saying his kingdom is like a field that has both wheat and weeds intermixed. A wheat farmer, he plants good wheat seed in the spring. But in the time between the planting and the harvest, an enemy comes and he plants weeds all throughout the field. The weeds the enemy plants wasn't weed. This isn't Colorado. This is darnel probably, which was the worst nightmare of any farmer. And as you can see, up on the screen, it, it looks almost indistinguishable until you get to harvest time, and then you can tell the difference. Darnel was absolutely worthless to the farmer. And in a Middle Eastern climate, you know, you see these days turn to weeks where they've got irrigation to help bring much-needed water to plants. And, and, and this wheat and these weeds are competing for very scarce resources to survive and to thrive. And finally... One of the servants notices something, goes out to the field and sees that not everything's okay. And so he goes to the farmer and he says, hey, do you know that there are weeds all throughout the field? How did they get here? And the farmer knows exactly what happened. An enemy came under nightfall seeking to sabotage his crop. And in an agricultural society, one failed crop can be the absolute demise of your whole business. And, and this is where I think the story makes an interesting turn, okay? The servants, they want to clear out the weeds immediately. Let's get them out of there. Let's make it so that the wheat can really flourish, so they're not competing for these scarce resources. And the farmer, whom Jesus later identifies as himself, says, not yet. Well, let, let's clear out these weeds from the good, this, this, this field, the, the, the bad seed, those who are in opposition to your kingdom, so that the good seed, those who are seeking your kingdom, can flourish. And Jesus says, no. No? No. A time is coming, and it's for the good of the good seed, but it's not yet. And it's out of this story we begin to see some of our disappointments unearthed. 
when it comes to Jesus' kingdom. And here's the first one. When it comes to Jesus' kingdom, it's not clear cut, which is really frustrating to us. I mean, in between when the gospel is first sowed and Jesus' first coming and when it is reaped and his second coming, we find a world with wheat and weeds, with good and evil, with pain and pleasure. It's not clear cut. And yet, if there's anything we came to Jesus for, it's to be our Savior, to deliver us, to protect us. We saw our lives without Christ, and we pursued him. Something popped up in your life, maybe the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one. And we want Jesus to pull out these weeds like yesterday. And instead, he says, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. We have instant gratification for almost everything around us. One click of the mouse, one conversation with Siri, and it's always there. And when we cry out to Jesus for relief and he says, not yet, that just feels disappointing. But what Jesus does here is he begins to nuance our expectations. He doesn't want us to be disappointed with his kingdom. He longs for us to delight in his kingdom come. And to do that, we need to actually have appropriate expectations as to what his kingdom is and what it is bringing. And this is his first nuance. We have to learn to expect messiness till the end. We have to learn to expect messiness to the end. His kingdom isn't clear cut. You know, the primary reason for so much of this messiness in your life and mine is as we see here, there is an enemy of Jesus. There is the evil one, dev the devil, Satan. And, and most of our lives, we're not just trying to avoid what so many call bad karma or bad luck or the repercussions of bad decisions. Instead, we have a personal enemy who is powerful and devious, and he's seeking to make death attractive. He's seeking to make greed comfortable. He's seeking to make pride seem very purposeful. And even violence entertaining. And in the midst of all this, his tactic for destroying the farmer is to destroy his crop. You and me. Because if he can destroy the crop, he can bring shame to the farmer. And prove to the world over that he would have been a better farmer to begin with. That he deserves the glory and honor that is only rightfully due Jesus Christ. And so as these weeds grow that he's planted and they seek to suck the very life out of us. He laughs for now. And when we cry out to Jesus, just take the weeds. Jesus says, not yet. It's for your good I wait. And in the time between, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Expect messiness to the end. A day is coming when the weeds will be gathered together and it will be a fire as high as heaven. And the wheat will be gathered in the storehouses. There is a day coming where that pain and that hurt will be dealt with. But it's not today. It's not today. And I know that may seem really disappointing. I know some of the weeds in some of your lives. The pain, the heartache. But I also don't want you to miss the good promise in all of this too. As disappointing as that may seem at first... The good news is that Jesus is a really good farmer. 
What's the reason for not pulling up the weeds? It's because you might pull up some of the wheat in the process. We don't understand his purposes and his practices always, but we know that they're perfectly pure and that he has our best in mind even though we can't see past it today. And so when we come, we must realize that Jesus longs to see the maturity of his crop more than anyone else. And so when those painful things, those destructive things, those evil things, when they pop up in our lives and we're disappointed of how Jesus did or didn't respond, remember that he is a good, good farmer. And he loves you more than you love yourself. He longs for your flourishing even more than you do. And even somehow by keeping those weeds in your life, he's preserving you. Somehow. Even though we don't understand it, that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So remember to expect messiness till the end. We're messy people who are part of a messy church in the midst of a really messy world. And his kingdom is like a field with both wheat and weeds. It's not clear cut. But that's maybe not the only disappointment we have when it comes to Jesus' kingdom, right? And so Jesus continues on by tackling another one of our disappointments that we have with him and his kingdom. And it begins in verse 31, and he tells another story. But it has to do with another farmer. This time a farmer, he comes with a single small mustard seed, which... As a matter of fact, it's one of the smallest seeds, and he plants it in his garden. And this small seed over time, the smallest of all the seeds of the plants that have been planted, grows to be taller than all the other plants in the garden and becomes a towering tree such that its branches are so mighty that birds come and rest in it. So how does this story speak to our oft-disappointment with Jesus' kingdom? Well... When you think about a seed, it says everything. Jesus' kingdom, it is not impressive. (laughs) It's not impressive. I mean, the smallest of seeds is supposed to bring about a world of change. The size and scope just seems unrealistic. And this is what everybody thought in the first century. You look at a Messiah who was born out of wedlock, who didn't have formal training, and then he grabs these 12 ragamuffins who don't have formal training. One of them looks like he's about to betray him at any moment. And then you have all the power and the authority of the Roman Empire. You have the religious establishment in Jerusalem. That's what they're going to go against. This motley crew is going to transform the landscape of the world. Really? And when we look in history, that's exactly what happens. His message and his influence becomes the tallest tree this world over. You know, the Washington Post back in 2012, look it up, Google it, not now, um, scoured 2,500 censuses, all right? And in that data, they were able to confidently proclaim that the leading religion with 2.2 billion adherents in 2012 was none other than Christianity. That is a third of the world's population and probably doesn't include many other countries where they cannot proclaim through censuses and other means. Jesus and his promise, ironically, has become very, very impressive. But this story isn't only about the rise of Christianity this world over. It's also about how it permeates our lives and our own communities. Another story he tells is about how leaven permeates the dough until all of it has been leavened. (coughs) And this 
This leaven, this seed, it's so small, it's so vulnerable, so unimpressive as a movement. And we want to be a transplanted oak, don't we? I mean, that's just so much easier. But instead, Jesus gives us the smallest of seeds that can get blown away with the, with the sneeze of a toddler. Listen, if you want to delight in Jesus' kingdom rather than be disappointed with it, we have to transform our expectations to align with what Jesus promises. And what Jesus tells us is to expect small, cumulative change till the end. Small, cumulative change till the end. Otherwise, you're going to get burnt out. You're going to get burnt out. You know what this looks like on the ground? This means that even though you've prayed for justice and you don't feel like your prayers are being answered after a week, after a month, after a year, after decades, you know and come to expect small cumulative change till the end. You're trying to kick that habit. You're trying to mend a relationship or actually feel forgiven over guilt and pain, over poor decisions that have made in your past. And you say, this takes time. It is slow and cumulative till the end. But even still, I know that can feel disappointing because we want it fast. We want it yesterday. But there's a promise even here. There's a promise even here that even though it may seem slow, God is doing something in you that will bring you further than anyone else can, further than anyone, thought, anyone else thought was possible, even maybe than you thought was possible. At the very core of who you are, God is transforming you and growing you to be taller, more robust, more broad than anyone could have imagined. This is what the gospel does in our lives. And when it comes to our relationships, when you would have been disappointed as you've been praying for a friend or you've been intentional in sharing the gospel with a friend and you feel like there's no reception happening, you know the seed has been planted. When you feel disappointed that you've been working at fighting injustice, trying to move the ball forward, seeking to be a helping hand, you actually shut down Facebook and you actually get in the streets and do something and you feel like nothing's going anywhere, the seed has been planted. And if 2,000 years of Christian history point to anything, it's that small, cumulative change continues to bring about a mountain of influence, even to the end. And what he's doing in each of us, it may feel disappointing in the short term. It's not like purchasing a car. It's walking in a relationship and being yoked to Jesus and following him. And in the long term, he will do more than we could ever have imagined. This is the secret of the kingdom of God. Expecting small cumulative change till the end. So, Jesus' kingdom, it isn't clear cut. It doesn't seem that impressive at first. And as disappointing as those are, Jesus tells one more story that I think kind of takes the cake. <laughs> and I'm not going to summarize it. I'm just going to read it for us because it's, it's pretty intense. Again, in verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing 
of teeth. Whew, kingdom of heaven. Now, if you were a Jewish fisherman at the Sea of Galilee, you knew exactly what Jesus was talking about here. A fisherman would use this round net. It was about 25 feet in diameter, and it had weights around the edges, and they would throw it into the water. It would sink to the bottom, and they would pull the net ashore and begin to divvy out which fish were good. The bad fish were too small, maybe already dead and putrid, or ceremonially unclean, depending on how many fins they had, if you look in the Old Testament. But the good fish, the perfect fish, were kept and sold in market. There was a distinction made. So what does this uncover about why Jesus' kingdom can seem so disappointing? Hear this. Jesus' kingdom can seem so disappointing because it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. Not in the end. And in our cultural situation with our Western sensibilities, that is really hard to stomach, right? We have been trained from very young to think that all paths lead up to the top of the mountain. And that is not an inherent truth. That is a belief structure that Jesus says is completely antithetical to his kingdom. And one day Jesus will separate those who are evil from those who are righteous. By his definition of evil and righteousness, we are not the judges. He will be the ultimate judge. And by God's grace, he has given us characteristics and guidance on what righteousness is, what rightness is through his word. We want a kingdom for everyone. But Jesus shows us time and again that it is only a kingdom for those who want it back, those who choose it, those who pursue it above all else. Because listen, the net is coming for all kinds of fish in the sea. The kingdom will actually swoop up everyone. The question becomes, which side will you be on in the divide? And if we don't want to be disappointed with what Jesus has said about his kingdom, but rather actually delight in his kingdom, then we need to learn to expect his judgment to come to everyone. We have to come to expect that and not be surprised by it or disappointed by it. You know what this speaks to? It speaks to the fact that each and every one of us were designed with a purpose. We were actually called to follow Christ for a purpose. We don't just live our lives any old way in any meaningless way into a broad oblivion that is the future. No. Your life isn't a choose-your-own-adventure game. No. Instead, we've been called for a purpose, and what you do with your life today matters. How you respond to Jesus and his kingdom matters. And the only righteous response in expecting his judgment to come to everyone is this. It's a theme throughout the pages of Scripture that Jesus himself affirms and that the apostles continue to elucidate throughout their writings. The only righteous response is to be in humility, to stand and communicate in humility that we are not righteous, ironically enough. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have committed cosmic treason against our creator, and we need his salvation more than the water we swim in. To be a part of his kingdom is to say, I would rather die on the shore in the presence of the master fisherman than to swim for all eternity in the sea without him. It is to be consumed with the master fisherman. This is the only way. And that is at the very center of his kingdom. Jesus Christ on the throne 
for those who embrace him and his ways. And right now, it doesn't seem clear-cut. It's messy. It's not all that impressive at times. It takes time. It's slow. And it's not for everyone. <coughs> and if you're honest with yourself when you're sitting having a cup of coffee or you're thinking about your life situation or maybe even some loved ones and friends, that can seem disappointing. And Jesus doesn't want us to be disappointed with his kingdom. He wants us to delight and his good design. As we heard read, as he reveals what has been hidden since the very foundation of the world in Matthew chapter 10, verse 35. And so, by God's grace, Jesus doesn't leave us there in our disappointments. Sure, his kingdom doesn't look like every other kingdom we see. It doesn't look like what we're supposed to quote-unquote do with power. It's not manipulative. It's not coercive. It's not dominating. It's inviting. It doesn't even look like how you're supposed to go about change oftentimes. And yet the further you look into Jesus' kingdom, you begin to see why his kingdom is worth your everything, even despite your disappointments. And to, to explain that, Jesus, of course, does it Jesus' style. He tells us another story, beginning here in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who... On finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. If you're willing to see what Jesus is really doing in his kingdom, when you find it, it's like you found the one thing you've been searching your whole life for. If you're a pearl merchant, you're going to sell all the other pearls you have because you found the most magnificent, the most beautiful pearl. You're going to sell your house, your clothes, anything you have to get this pearl. Because this is your everything. This is what you've been searching for. This is the best of the best. And as we wrestle through all the different ways we thought needed to go about to change the world, when we come to Jesus' way and his kingdom and where he's taking the world, it should cause each and every one of us to say, I'll give up anything and everything. I'll give up my dignity, my pride, a relationship, a financial status, a preference, because Jesus' kingdom is worth every sacrifice. But even as I say that, and it's up on the board behind me, I still don't think that gets at it completely. There's more here that Jesus wants to unearth for us. And to do that, we need to look at one more story, and it's here in verse 44. It's a story of hidden treasure, okay? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Believe it or not, you know, it was common practice for people to bury stuff, um, their treasure, you know, their, their wealth. And <clears throat> the ground was kind of equivalent to our Wells Fargo with like half the customer service, right? And if you buried your stuff, sorry, and then if you buried your stuff and, and you died, um, then you've got a treasure hunt on your hands. Someone cue Nicolas Cage, right? It's on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Whatever. <laughs> it's Memorial Day. I'm trying to make a connection. Really rough. I told First Service I wasn't even going to do this, but here I am. <laughs> the likelihood, though, in the midst of all of this, is that someone would actually find that treasure was one in 1,000. It was extremely rare. And so the fact that this guy finds the treasure... 
Of course he's ecstatic. This is going to change his life. And he's going to sell whatever he can to get this piece of property. And he does it with joy because he realizes what he's got at his hands and how it's going to make everything about who he is better. And that's Jesus' kingdom. So many people walk over it. So many people walk past it. But if you know what it is you've found, you know, and you're willing to give up everything you have, even that one thing you're terrified of giving up, if it means getting that one thing, the very kingdom of heaven. And you know what that means? That means Jesus' kingdom isn't just worth every sacrifice. Instead, Jesus' kingdom turns every sacrifice into the investment of a lifetime. Because you figured out what you've got. You've won the jackpot. And at the end, you've got the most glorious thing before you. So how could you not give it all away with joy because you know what comes ahead? This is the unique nuance that Jesus is highlighting. This unassailable joy when you find the kingdom. But wait. Jesus knows that's not what we're looking for. <laughs> We've got our own pathways that we think are really justifiable. Jesus, this is really good. Patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. But we got to get things done in the world, all right? And that takes a little messiness of our own sort to bring about what we think your kingdom should look like. It's not clear cut. Doesn't really seem that impressive. It's really not something for everyone. So why are people looking for it? I mean, why is this worth every sacrifice? And how does this become the best investment? Well, Jesus is saying that the value of his kingdom is inherent in his kingdom. And if you don't see it, that's on you. It's not because the kingdom is flawed. It's not because he's flawed. It's because you're blind to your own brokenness. You've stumbled upon a bag of money and you just kept walking. And if you hear about the kingdom and you don't get it, you're looking for the wrong king and the wrong kingdom that will bring about the best of all possible worlds. So why is it worth everything? Why is it worth the messiness? Why is it worth the sacrifice? Why is it worth waiting? It's because Jesus longs to do more with his kingdom than we could ever imagine. This world is more broken than we could have ever thought. You're more broken than you could have ever thought. And the work of his kingdom is more comprehensive than we could have ever imagined. And really, your expectations when it comes to God's kingdom aren't too grand. They're too myopic. They're too self-centered. That's why we're disappointed. It's because we're focused in on me and my needs and myself and I. When Jesus wants to transform the world, you included. For first century Jewish people, the problem was thought to be Rome. And Jesus says, oh, that's only part of the picture. The enemy's so much bigger than Rome. And for us today, we can still think the issue is politics and policy, with especially the climate we find ourselves in. We can get ourselves encased in fear and worry getting over-consumed with who's using what restroom, talking about freedom of speech, and bringing us back to the good old days when Jesus doesn't want to bring us back. He wants to bring us forward. Better than the good old days to the best days that lie ahead because the end is where his kingdom comes and his will is done perfectly, not in the past. Problem so much deeper and such that it's invaded every human heart, and there's a cancer that has invaded the very guts of the universe. And for that sort of redemption, that sort of restoration, 
It takes a whole different understanding of his kingdom to bring about transformation. You see, he doesn't want to just make your corner of the world or my corner of the world better. He wants to make the cosmos new. A world where we not just find the person that special someone, but now everyone sees each other as special, as someone uniquely made in the image of God. A world where not just your business flourishes, but where everyone has a place of contribution regardless of their race, ethnicity, gender, or age. A world where no one's alone. A world where those old pains, those old wounds are like distant nightmares, forgotten. A world where there's just not freedom of speech, but where everyone now freely speaks of their love for one another and their love for Christ. This kind of world is beyond our imagination. And this is the kind of world that his kingdom has come to bring. And to bring about this kind of world, God himself had to enter this broken world in the person of Jesus Christ. The same king who says that his kingdom is worth every sacrifice is the same one who gave everything so that we might enter freely. It is the same God who saw how broken this world is and he paid the price for his kingdom with his own death. And so was a substitute paying our debt and making a way of reconciliation before God so that we can now genuinely be reconciled one to another And so the very earth might also be transformed by the power of his word. Sure, it's messier than some had hoped. It's not as impressive as we thought at first. It requires patience, and it's really not for everyone. Oh, but when you find this kingdom, when you find this king, this treasure, what wouldn't you lose to gain it? What wouldn't you lose to gain it? And so I want to end with this question this morning. How will you this week, with your life, not just with your words, but with your whole self, how will you respond to Jesus and this kingdom? How will you respond to Christ? Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, oh, but deliver us from evil and the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.